was praying that the raging storm would stay a little longer with your feet up on the dashboard of my summer dream and westward I was hoping that we'd wake up to the softest of spring mornings humming do 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 Chronicles and lessons from a life tied to family, community, and the land. I'm Shannon Hayes, and I operate Sapbush Hollow Farm with three generations of my family in the northern Catskill Mountains in upstate New York. I'm the chef owner of Sapbush Cafe, a farm-to-table and neighbor-to-neighbor experience, open Saturdays only in our tiny hamlet of West Fulton. And I'm also the author of a few books, including Radical Homemakers and the Grass-Fed Gourmet. This podcast is the audio version of my blog, which can be found at sapbush.com or theradicalhomemaker.net. You know, we all have regrets, especially me, but I always assumed I could protect my children from not having any. This month, as we said goodbye to one of our animal friends, it occurred to me that maybe that wasn't fair. Our house is slowly being consumed by rodents. They no longer fear my presence. When I come down to my office at 3 a.m., they don't even have the decency to scamper and hide. They just sit there on the floor, staring up at me as though I'm supposed to brew them coffee. They even run across my desk while I'm working. I've taken to naming them. We need a cat, Ula tells me. I hate cats. She knows this. She pushes anyway. Mice sense the presence of the predator. They'll go away. Cats crap in boxes. When they're mad at you, they crap in houseplants or your bathtub. They spray. They shed. Our last cat, Ramona Quimby, lived to age 17. After she died, Bob and I tacked an addendum onto our wedding vows. I, Shannon, promise to you, Robert that I shall never bring home a kitten. I, Robert, promise to you, Shannon, that I shall never bring home a kitten. Sergio Nula took no part in the vow ceremony. After a suitable period of mourning for their beloved Ramona in December of 015, they initiated Operation Kitty 016. And I got them kittens and deliver them promptly to the farm. It will give them something to engage with down here, I told Mom as she met me at the kitchen door with crossed arms. I left the kitty carrier and two children on her doorstep for the afternoon. The kids went down there the next day, and the next day. That summer became the summer of kitty love at the farm. Ula named her kitten Bourbon. Sersha named hers Khan. 
and the mice started nibbling at the tallow soap next to my kitchen sink at home, and we moved all the starches into glass jars. It was only a summer's worth of Operation Kitty Reprieve in our household. The cafe opened, and Sersha and Ula discovered they could magnify their influence by influencing the influencers. They took on the front of the house. Sersha talked to customers at the espresso bar about the importance of cats as she pulled their drinks. Ula would deliver their breakfast to their tables and do the same. And then the customers would hassle us. You need cats, they'd tell me when I ran out to bus tables. The girls have cats, I'd sigh and remove their plates. In your house, they'd clarify. I know where there's a cat who needs a home. (laughs) There's never a shortage of cats, I'd remind them. And then Bourbon disappeared. Ula drew pictures of him and hung them in the post office and around West Fulton. He never came back. A cat's disappearance is an odd morning. The moment never comes when you conclude they're gone. There's worry, but there's hope, too. And then, somehow, life moves on, especially for Ula, who also has pet chickens and pet sheep, a pet goose, and pet pigs. But Khan stayed on, and he became an extraordinary barn cat, He rode in the mule with Kate to do chores, scaled fence posts and perched on the top, made nests in the egg buckets, and he caught rats and mice. But as he grew to be part of the farm, Sersha had a different sort of growth. She became a teenager. She began finding more and more things and people annoying and stupid. She took to spending more time home alone in her room. She got a boyfriend. Something's wrong with Khan, Mom says to me over the phone one morning in December. I don't give it much thought. He's a robust beast. Khan's getting worse, she tells me in January. I don't think he's going to make it. She's crying on the phone now. Sersha takes the news in stride, or so I think. I'm downstairs at my desk crunching numbers in the middle of the night, generating the Sapbush annual report for our January meeting. The first few weeks of the year are a strain for me. Lots of reports to generate, lots to analyze, plus the monthly bookkeeping and all the usual tasks of running a business. I make use of the middle of the night for a lot of it, when the quiet of the house induces better concentration. But that night, Sersha comes into my office. Her typically cool, calm, 16-year-old face is streaked with tears. I don't want to lose Khan, she sobs. I launch from my chair and catch her in my arms. She folds over me and I hug her tight, then lower her to the floor in front of the fire. It is hard for this strong girl to be vulnerable. Her armor is her composure. She tries to swallow down some tears, then bites her lip. I want to tell her that he'll be okay. I know better than that. Then she finds words. Will you help me pray for him? She has come and sat with me countless times when I've asked for help with prayer, but she has never asked for this. I find a candle, she lights it, and we sit on the rug in front of the fire holding hands. There's so much more I could have done, 
She starts. What do you mean? You loved him. You've always been great with him. I could have loved him more. I stayed away from the farm. I didn't want to have fights with anyone. So I just stayed home and I stayed away from Khan. You did what was normal for a person your age, I argue. Finding us annoying and wanting to do your own thing is how you become an adult. But he didn't deserve that. Her tears flow harder. She slumps down into herself. Only the grip of my hands keep her from curling into a ball of self-loathing. I want to argue with her. I want to tell her to snap out of it. I want to tell her that no one blames her. But a tiny voice inside me whispers, Stay quiet. She's entitled to experience her own regrets. I don't want my children to have regrets, I argue back with the inner voice. I want to squeeze these out of her. But I don't. I listen to the voice and stay quiet. You know, he never fell for the cucumber trick, she tells me, a tiny smile appearing on her face. We tried scaring them both with all different sized cucumbers from Grammy's garden. We watch the candlelight flicker from side to side for a little while, then she speaks again. We used to shove them into a picnic basket and carry them up to the farm pond for picnics. I can't believe they let us do that, she laughs. And they stayed up there with us, too. A few moments later, she adds, And then there was that time we were sleeping over at the farm, and Grammy said we couldn't have them in the bedroom with us. So Ula and I waited until they fell asleep, and then we snuck them up. But but we didn't bring their litter box, and they pooped, and one of them had diarrhea, and it was everywhere. It was the middle of the night, and we were trying to clean up all this cat poop without waking Grammy and Pop-Pop, and it was Awful! She laughs more. We fall back into silence, but she doesn't crumble into herself this time. I feel her hands start to relax. We offer prayer for the souls we love, but so often these prayers are medicine for our own aching hearts. And while Khan would not pull through this illness, I witnessed a different sort of miracle. I watched my teenage daughter battle her regrets. She didn't allow me to blot them away. Instead, she stayed with them on that living room floor, and they led her on a journey to self-forgiveness and acceptance of Khan's passage. But they did more than that. I had assumed that the role of the aloof teenager was an obligatory developmental passage, I also assumed that one day, with the flip of a switch, that phase would end. What I never understood was how the experience of regret is critical to moving through this. Regrets are a call to change and grow. My compulsion to squelch them within her could stymie her own inner drive to ask more of herself, to push herself, to grow and find deeper fulfillment. We don't ask the divine in our prayers to let Khan live. He's a cat, after all. One never commands a cat, not even the divine. 
we ask Khan to consider recovering and staying with us. Then we use our prayer to express gratitude for all that he has brought to us. And then I feed the wood stove and damper it down, and Sersha blows out the candle. I turn off the computer and leave my figures and calculations for another time. We go to the guest bedroom and crawl under the covers. My body can no longer stretch the length of hers, but I curl around my not-so-little girl as best I can. She leans into me and falls asleep, my baby once more, however briefly. But Khan's passage does not break the wedding vow addendum. It's the mouse turds Bob and I find in our coffee cups. I told you they were looking for coffee. Our vet tips us off to some healthy kittens at the dairy farm at the bottom of the hill. Bob and I tack an addendum on our wedding vow addendum, and our family goes on a kitten quest. We arrive at milking time, and the healthy kittens all scatter. One wheezy kitten, with his tail lobbed off, climbs up on the farmer's office chair and swipes at Ula until she picks him up. She names him Lafayette. Another, with a smashed foot and infected eye, brushes around Sersha's legs until she takes him in her arms. She names him Mordecai. After several hundred dollars and several return visits to the vet, they're restored to health. Lafayette has adopted the nickname Yeti as he stomps across the floor, pouncing on anything that moves in the house. Mordecai has taken to the kitchen. He sits in the middle of the floor as I work, studying my every move. I find him to be a bit of a food critic. He's now known as Chef Morty. Sersha and Ula claim full responsibility for the litter box. And then, one morning in the pre-dawn hours, shortly after Khan's death, it happens. Chef Morty and Yeti disappear behind one of the chairs in my office. There's some scrambling and bouncing. The dogs get agitated and flank either side of them. When I turn to see what's happening, a dead mouse is laid at my feet. Suddenly, I'm smitten with cats. I credit the spirit of Khan for coaching these felines into the behaviors that will endear themselves to me. I credit him with a lot of things these days, particularly the renewed growth and reflection that I'm seeing in my daughter. Khan, I'm deeply thankful you walked this earth. Rest in peace. If you enjoyed this, I hope you did, please take a few minutes and leave a review. This helps other folks find my work. And if you could share this podcast with friends and family, so much the better to help get the ideas to spread. To learn more about our grass-fed meats, weekly cafe specials, wool yarn, all-natural wool bedding, our super cozy vacation rental, or our tenter site, be sure to visit sapbush.com. There you can also find out more about my books or how to schedule me for a speaking event or a class. You can also just pose a question that you'd like me to answer on air. This podcast happens with the support of my patrons on Patreon, and this week I'd like to send a shout-out to my patrons Natalie Boburka and Gabe Forabrock. Thank you, guys! I couldn't do it without you. If you'd like to help support my work and gain access to exclusive content, you can do so for as little as $1 a month by hopping over to Patreon and looking up Shannon Hayes. 
This was produced and edited by the sexiest man alive, my husband Bob Hooper, and the great music we're listening to comes to us from memory. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Now